This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special series, A Seat at the Table, where we look at the life and legacy of a cabinet member, I am joined by a fellow podcaster to look at our subject today. My guest today is Stacy Roberts, who is the host of the History's Trainwrecks podcast. Stacy, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me. I told you before we started recording that I had you in mind for this cabinet member. Before I reveal who this cabinet member is, I actually wanted to give you a chance to share with the audience a little about your podcast. Well, thanks. Um, so I've always been interested in the the uh, not so much the big things in history as the little things. You know, when I was a kid, I was fascinated by Abraham Lincoln, you know, keeping things in his hat, but I didn't really memorize the Gettysburg Address. So when it comes to history's train wrecks, I started to notice when I was reading historical biographies that there are a lot of historical figures who seem to have everything going for them. And then at the last minute, they blow it. And I was like, well, why does that keep happening? And uh, for an example, think about Aaron Burr, who you covered in your Jefferson series, right? Here's a guy who was one vote short of being president of the United States. He got more votes than John Adams and a bunch of other founding fathers. Here's a guy who was this close to, to being in the Pantheon. And four years after he nearly wins the presidency, he's on trial for treason. He eventually has to go to England and come back under an assumed name and dies in relative obscurity. And you think, wow, that happened fast, right? My other favorite example, uh, and you'll, you'll get to him probably six years from now, but Douglas MacArthur. At the beginning of World War II, he was the highest ranking general in the army. He was put in command of the forces that we thought were going to be the tip of the spear in the war, you know, the Far East. And at the same time, Dwight Eisenhower is pushing paper in the war plans department. And so you fast forward 10 years, MacArthur's been fired, Eisenhower's president. And, and you think, what caused such a, a, a steep fall from such a height? And the answer is they did it to themselves. And so to me, that's the train wreck part. And so in my podcast, I talk about individuals, but then I also talk about train wreck episodes like the fall of the Roman Republic, which was a huge train wreck. And and you'll get to this too, but in 1904, when Teddy Roosevelt won the presidency in his own right, on election night, he promised never to run again. And he was 46 years old. He had just won in a landslide and promising not to run again ruined his life. The next 11 years of his life or the, um, the next 15 years of his life were a train wreck and just covering it in detail. So I kind of like the lessons that you can learn from that. And just, you know, like a train wreck, some of these things are just, they spiral so badly. You're like, oh my God, what are you doing? And so it's really interesting history. And so I thought I'd do a show about it. And that's the thing. It is, it, it's one of those things that 
everything can look just right on paper. It can look like, of course, this person's going to succeed. And then something happens and no, it's something completely different or somebody completely different. And that's one of the fascinating things about history. And, and I think there are lessons about life lessons in that, you know, for all of us. Right. And when you've got everything going for you, don't mess it up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as we've seen in the special series, we have had some folks who have been very successful and we've also seen some train wrecks. Right. <laughs> so we will see how this cabinet member ranks up. And as usual, I have not shared with Stacy who we are going to be talking about until now. Stacy, we are going to be talking about Benjamin Stoddard. Oh, wow. Have you heard of Benjamin Stoddard? I have heard the name, but beyond that, I don't have a lot of background. Well, let's dive in and learn a bit more about him. So Stoddard was born in Charles County, Maryland in 1751. He was the son of Captain Thomas Stoddard and Sarah Marshall Stoddard. He was the only son to Thomas and Sarah. He did have a sister who, so just to make things really confusing, was also named Sarah. But it's unclear whether she was an older or a younger sibling. We also don't have a specific birth date for him. I was not able to find an actual birth date, just the year. We're going to have a few moments like this in Stoddard's life where we just don't know the details, but it starts very early on. Now, Charles County, where he was born, is just downriver from what is now Washington, D.C. And as we'll see, that area really plays a large role in his life. Benjamin was the third generation of the Stoddard family to live in the British North American colonies. So, of course, at this time, this was before independence. His grandfather, James Stoddard, had come over from Scotland to Maryland with his wife in around 1650. And so he settled near Charles County. Thomas, who was Benjamin's father, was James Stoddard's youngest son. And that's pretty much all we know about his early life. So. Wow. <laughs> Fast forward to his college years. Supposedly, he went to the University of Pennsylvania, though even that was in doubt by the only short biography I was able to find on Stoddart, and there's no information on what he studied there, if he actually did study there. <laughs> so. He sounds like a character from one of those 80s movies about, you know, the college guys who are kind of phoning it in. <laughs> he he could have just been partying all the time. We don't right, know. Right. <laughs> but after he graduated or not or from not. the University of Pennsylvania, <laughs> he went to work as a merchant. This career, you know, he starting out as a young merchant would actually be put on pause with the coming of the war. Here we actually get to the Revolutionary War. You know, we have the Declaration of Independence, we have the colonies rebelling against the British government, and Stoddart volunteered for the Pennsylvania Cavalry on January 13, 1777, and he served for two years as a captain. Now, he was actually injured in the Battle of Brandywine on September 11, 1777, so he only lasted a few months before getting injured, and unfortunately, this battle was a loss for the Continental Army. Due to his injury, he was released from active military service and went on to serve as secretary to the Continental Board of War for two years. And that's pretty much his military career. <laughs> do, we have a, do we have a range of, of when his birthday might have been, his birth date? 
we don't really know. I, I, I wasn't even able to find a month, which that's one of the interesting things about doing some of the more obscure cabinet members is that there are just some details that are lost. Well, and not even obscure with Alexander Hamilton. We don't even know what year he was born in. So at least we know a year. So we have an approximate age for him. Okay. Towards the end of the war, Benjamin courted Rebecca Lowndes, who was the daughter of a prominent Maryland merchant, Christopher Lowndes, and the two wed in June 1781. As noted by Harriet Stoddard Turner in her short biography of Stoddard, he, quote, was drawn by his marriage into an atmosphere both monarchical and nautical. And that relates to the fact that his new father-in-law was a merchant. Benjamin and Rebecca moved in with them at their estate, Bostwick, which is located in Bladensburg, Maryland, just northeast of what is now the District of Columbia. His new father-in-law, an immigrant from England, had been one of the founders of Bladensburg in 1746. He also had a shipbuilding operation on the Eastern Branch that supplied ships for the important West Indies trade. With his family connection, and he was already getting into the mercantile business, this helped to really advance his career. Now, in terms of his personal life, him and his new wife would have at least seven children from what I've been able to find. They could have had more. Not really sure, but I know of at least seven. (laughs) It's just like college. He does everything the same way. Exactly. Just trying to keep low on the details. Right. So following the war, Stoddard, of course, reestablished himself as a merchant, and he formed a tobacco export business in Georgetown, Maryland in 1783 with his business partners, Uriah Forrest and John Murdoch. The firm established branch houses in London and Bordeaux. Though I haven't been able to find any evidence that Stoddard enslaved individuals directly at this point, we should note that tobacco cultivation in the region did depend on enslaved labor, and so Stoddard was involved in that either directly or indirectly. His business involved exporting tobacco from producers along the Potomac to European partners. He was also apparently a supplier of goods to nephews of General George Washington, which is likely how Washington learned of Stoddard. So starting to make these connections, and at this time, of course, George Washington was the most famous person in the United States, the new nation. And so Always a good connection to have. Yeah, I, I'm I'm his tobacco dealer. I know him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I know a guy. <laughs> As a sign of the firm's success, in the late 1780s, Stoddard established his family in a house that he had constructed at the corner of Prospect and Frederick Streets, which has come to be known as Halcyon House. Pierre L'Enfant, who also drafted the original plan for Washington, D.C., apparently designed the garden for Halcyon House. He's really growing in prominence, and you know we'll we'll talk a bit more about the house in a little bit. But this is definitely a sign that he is growing and he is prospering as a merchant. Unfortunately, the family did suffer a personal loss with the death of Rebecca's father, his father-in-law, in January of 1785. At the time of his death, Christopher Lowndes enslaved 37 individuals, and though Rebecca's brother Benjamin Lowndes inherited the Boswick estate, according to one source I read. It apparently remained the home of their mother, Elizabeth, until her death in September 1789. Now, for some reason, after Elizabeth's death, Benjamin and Rebecca Stoddard became responsible for managing the estate, although they didn't own it at the time. And 
again, wasn't able to find any details about that. It was kind of odd, but there we go. <laughs> yeah, that does sound kind of odd. There's a lot of shady stuff going on with Benjamin Stoddard. Yeah, it, it, he, he's he's definitely keeping things on the down low, and we, we want to know why. Right. <laughs> Are you earning all of that money legitimately, or is there kind of an under-the-table operation? Who knows? Right. <laughs> So 1789, in addition to being an important year for the family, would also be a pivotal year for the United States. As listeners of this podcast know, the new federal government was established under the Constitution. And so one of the first major questions faced by officials who were taking their new offices was where the capital for the new nation would be. So at this time, it was in New York City. The capital had moved around a bit during the Confederation period. And so... Congress and the new president and the new officials were starting to think, okay, well, if we have our rathers, where would we like this new capital to be? Now, once the District of Columbia was established, so they did ultimately decide on the spot on the Potomac River and form the District of Columbia. Right before that, though, President Washington reached out to Stoddart and he convinced Stoddart to buy some key parcels of land in the area which after the formal decision was made to move the capital there and build the new nation's capital, Stoddart then transferred over to the federal government these parcels of land that he had bought. In this way, Stoddart helped the government avoid having to compete with private interests to secure property at higher cost once folks knew the land would ultimately become the nation's capital. So (laughs) there are some under-the-table dealings going on, and George Washington is involved in them, apparently. <laughs> well, and Stoddard seems like the go-to guy. It's like, if you're trying to do something a little little shifty, it's the some possible University of Pennsylvania graduate, maybe not. That's the guy you want to deal with. Yeah, so uh, now I'm starting to think that maybe Stoddard was a bad influence on George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> or is there is there more about George Washington that we don't know? <laughs> well, and I'm curious about that, too, because, you know, Washington was a great land speculator. And so mm-hmm. this is the kind of strategy that you think, oh, well, this is in Washington's wheelhouse. But now, the more I find out about Stoddard, the more I'm wondering if he's like, hey, I got an idea. <laughs> well, and, and it also speaks to you know the fact that it hadn't been settled yet, but Washington, and it, it does show Washington's influence over that decision because, of course, Washington really wanted the capital close to Mount Vernon. So you do see his influence and then in this roundabout way, and, and granted, looking at it from the bright side, it did save the federal government money that otherwise they would have had to spend to buy land at higher prices. But it also speaks to that things weren't always so above the board. And some of these backroom deals have been going on for a long period of time. Yes. And I think if you look glass half full, there's arguments to be made for the capital being midway, essentially, between the North and the South. I mean, that kind of makes sense. I could see George Washington having a motivation to make this easy on the federal government. Like, I don't want to get bogged down in a bidding war for where I'm going to put the State Department. So let's have let's have you go do it, Stoddard, since you're a shifty guy anyway, and just kind of smooth things out because Washington always seemed like a guy who knew there were going to be bigger problems to solve. And so let's get the little stuff out of the way. Exactly. Let's really focus our efforts on 
what we really need to focus on versus these little details. And to be fair, and you bring up a good point, Stacey, that was part of the argument and why there were so many of the proposed places for the capital were in that mid-Atlantic region because folks from the South were saying, well, we don't want to travel all the way from Georgia up to New York City. And meanwhile, half the states, it's really convenient to them. And so they were really looking at that middle of the road area. It's interesting. And you do get Washington's bias because he, of course, had been involved with the Potomac Company. He thought that this would be, uh, you know, they would build a canal, which would connect it to the markets in the West. And this would become just a major thoroughfare for the nation. It never really happened. But Washington felt that's the way things were going to go. He had no way of knowing that it wasn't going to happen at that point. So it, it's it's an interesting, this is an interesting moment. And in most of the accounts that I've read, they didn't really mention Stoddart. But as we can see, he did have a key role in this in securing land for the federal government. Well, and I do, I like the fact that this is one of those things that can be argued from both sides, you know. If you, if you suspect, and I often do, because the more I learn about George Washington, the more I learn that, you know, he, he modeled himself on like Cato the Younger, you know, the ancient Roman who was highly principled and, and Cincinnatus, all these guys who put aside their personal interests for the good of the country. And so separating the political capital from the economic capital, that's a smart idea. And if his Potomac, uh, I'm going to call it a scheme, but he'll be mad. But anyway, um, if that had actually panned out, it would have been great. And and having the capital where, uh, where it's situated would have been perfect. So if you, if you land on the side of Washington's motives were pure and purely in the interest of what was best for the country, this kind of checks those boxes. Exactly. And it was just, it was just business to him. Yeah. You know, that's how he saw it. And so Stoddard, you know, has this important role in the founding of the nation's capital he also aided the development of the capital city by founding the Bank of Columbia, which handled purchases of land for the federal government. And Stoddard actually served as the bank's first president. So he is heavily involved in the development of the district. We should note a couple of other items about Stoddard's life during this time. So first of all, Stoddard's interest in land was not just in the District of Columbia, as he had also purchased just over a thousand acres of land in neighboring Prince George's County by 1796. Also, as of the first U.S. Census in 1790, Stoddard is reported as enslaving 13 individuals. So we, we do know that he was a person who enslaved individuals at this point. And this number dropped slightly to 11 as of the 1800 census, but that's, that's where he's at in terms of enslaving individuals. And we do try and note that, and we'll have more discussions about that once we get to our categories at the end. Now, likely in part due to his longstanding unofficial support of the constitutional government, Stoddard would ultimately be turned to in order to fulfill a more official role in the government. With the U.S. Navy, though the bill to build the first frigates of the U.S. Navy had been enacted in 1794, as we discussed in prior episodes of this series as well as the narrative series, it wouldn't be until April 30th, 1798, that the task of managing the Navy was transferred from the War Department to an independent Department of the Navy. And in part, that's due to, as we've discussed when we discuss Secretaries of War and the War Department at the time, 
there was so much responsibility in that office and just the secretary, a few clerks, and that was it, trying to manage the army, trying to work with building the frigates of the Navy, trying to manage diplomatic exchanges with native peoples. There was just so much in that office. And so this was one thing, and especially this is in the Adams administration, and John Adams was more focused on building up the Navy than the Army. And so he pushed for this new department and this responsibility to be taken out so that somebody could really focus in on that. And of course, you know, once it was created in 1798, the new Navy department would require a secretary to manage it. Now, Stoddart was actually not President Adams's first choice for the role of Secretary of the Navy. That honor went to George Cabot of Massachusetts. Adams reached out to him. However, Cabot quickly refused. He was like, no, I have no desire to do that. Thus, on May 18th, John Adams sent in Stoddart's nomination to the Senate. Just because Stoddart was nominated as had been the case with Cabot, because apparently John Adams did this with Cabot as well. He sent in the nomination and then asked him whether he wanted to be secretary. So he does the same thing with Stoddart, and it doesn't necessarily mean that Stoddart's going to accept, even though he was confirmed by the Senate. When Adams approached Stoddart about the position, he at first proved reluctant to serve. He wrote to Francis Lowndes around that time that, quote, I hate office have no desire for fancied or real importance, and wish to spend my life in retirement and ease without bustle of any kind. Yet, it seems cowardly at such a time as this to refuse an important and highly responsible position. So here's a question for you. It feels like Stoddard's relationship primarily was with Washington. And so I'm I'm curious if he and Adams were on any terms at all before this, or whether this was one of those things where George Washington sent Adams a letter saying, hey, if you're looking for a guy who knows things about ships, give Stoddard a ring. And you really do get that sense. I wasn't able to find any prior connections between them. It was likely, you know, whether it was Washington or just other people in the government, hey, you know, this guy's been working with us for a while. He hasn't really been in office, but maybe he's somebody to consider. And where he he had that merchant background, his father-in-law had been involved in shipbuilding. This was likely somebody that they they felt, okay, well, if anybody can do this, it's him. And we'll actually talk a bit more about that in a minute. But ultimately, Stoddart's sense of patriotism would win over. You know, he did acknowledge this was, and we'll talk a bit more about the quasi-war in a few minutes, but this was a time that we really needed a Navy. We really needed to ramp up the Navy. And so because he saw that importance, Stoddard did accept and he assumed office on June 18th, 1798. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One can only imagine the challenge of taking over a newly created department 
without any precedent to follow. So he was the first Secretary of the Navy. What made it more challenging is the administration into which Stoddart was entering. So as we discussed in this series, as we discussed in the Adams presidency series, President Adams was constantly at odds with his own cabinet members, and Stoddart's new cabinet colleagues were not above directly or indirectly thwarting Adams' agenda. Beyond just this idea of going into public life, this acceptance of the post of Secretary of the Navy would mean a change for the family, because at this point, even though they were building the federal capital in the District of Columbia, it was still in Philadelphia. And so Stoddard and his family had to move from Georgetown to Philadelphia, and apparently his wife and seven children came with him. And they moved into a house on Chestnut Street, which was close to the Navy office. That way he could at least be close to his family. And it's interesting because we've had other instances of folks who have joined the cabinet and maybe their families didn't come with them or they only came for a short amount of time. But here we do see Stoddard. And again, we don't have much detail about it, but it does seem at least that he is close to his family and wants them with him while he's in office. Well, and and it seems to me that he was doing pretty well financially at this point, unlike, you know, maybe Edmund Randolph, who needed to keep his other seven jobs. So, you know, Stoddard might have been in a better financial place to say, hey, let's all just go to Philadelphia so I can do this thing. Absolutely. And Stacey, that's an important point. And we've talked about this before in the special series. That was part of the reasoning, you know, because it becomes expensive to bring your family to have to get a larger house to basically have you either you shut down your old house, but you still have to have maintenance done. You still have to have people checking on it and you're establishing a completely new household. And it did take a good amount of wealth to do that. So that also speaks to that Stoddard's doing rather successfully for himself versus other cabinet members. And in part, I think we can also say that that's due to he was never in office before. Public office at the time could get rather expensive. And so because he's never been in public office before, he's just been focused on the business. You see that approach because we have talked about so many other cabinet members that went from office to office to office to office, where Stoddart comes in and this is his first role in public life. He approaches service in the cabinet much differently than his colleagues. As he wrote to Adams years later, quote, I did not hold and never had held myself at liberty to oppose a measure of yours and retain my office. This is a completely new mindset for an Adams cabinet member that you actually support the president and his agenda. (laughs) Also a good note to send over to Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You can actually support the president, the presidential administration of which you are a part. Try it. While while you are vice president, you can actually support your president, or at least just not actively work against your president. Pick one. (laughs) Pick one. And historian Leonard White notes that, quote, one element of his, Stoddart's genuine success was his modesty and willingness to seek advice. Even to a naval agent in the department, Stoddart wrote admitting that, quote, I am but new to my office and shall stand in need of all the aid I can obtain from enlightened and patriotic men like yourself 
in all parts of the Union. Stoddart would indeed need as much advice as he could get, for he had a heavy lift. He had to build up a viable U.S. naval force from what was just a mere three ships when he took office. Ian Toll wrote a book about the first six frigates of the U.S. Navy, and he talks about that this may have been part of Adams's reasoning for appointing Stoddart to this new post, because uh, Toll wrote, quote, Adams had reasoned that a merchant experienced in outfitting ships for foreign trade was best qualified to oversee the naval mobilization of 1798. A merchant would be practiced in the arts of bargaining with shipwrights, in managing the details of manning and provisioning, in the dull rigors of accounting, and in judging the reliability of sea officers. The instinct to manage cost for profit ran in every merchant's blood. Who better to watch over the public purse? See, now that's a great point on several levels, because, you know, some of the other departments in the cabinet were, you know, just paper pushing. Like, they didn't have to produce anything tangible. But when it comes to the Navy Department, you've got to build ships and put guys on them and get cannons and things like that. The other aspect that I found interesting is that the history of the American Navy is invariably tied up with seaborne commerce. Like uh, when Teddy Roosevelt was was uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, he could only get battleships built by saying that they were for coastal defense only and to protect merchant shipping. And so in this particular case, it feels like from day one, the Navy is, is almost an extension of you know, commerce. And it's, it's, it's cheek by jowl with, with, you know, shipping and things like that. It's really kind of, it's there to protect shipping. And so having a, a merchant who's, who's steeped in that for his whole professional life, he already knows these guys, like he knows who they are. And it's much easier to get something done because I, I imagine that the early Republic was not a fan of standing anything, armies, navies, you name it. They probably had trouble even just building lighthouses because they were so permanent. And so, you know, getting a, a Navy off the ground was was a heavy lift because people feared it. They feared an institution that like that. And so the closer you got to making it about business and making sure that our goods can get from port to port, the easier that pill was to swallow. Now we're putting cannon on there and we may have to go to war with somebody someday. But for now... We're just making sure that your stuff can get from New York to Charleston. Absolutely. And and that's the thing. At that point, so we were engaged in the quasi-war, which was an undeclared war, but you did have French ships that were attacking American shipping. And we're going to see this time and time again. And you, know, you brought up Teddy Roosevelt. So even over 100 years later, you still see this, that the Navy has a role in protecting American shipping abroad because it's ultimately helping to fuel the economy because those import fees, that was really where the nation was drawing its revenue from was importing goods and exporting goods in that international trade. This was a time before we had the federal income tax. This was a time before all of that. And so in order for the nation's government to continue to get funds, we had to have shipping open. And so, yeah, I, I think you hit on a great point there. And that was part of, I think, what helped to convince folks that, yes, we do really need this Navy. We'll see in the Jefferson presidency 
kind of rolls that back a bit. But for now, at least at this point, folks are, okay, we do really need a Navy. We need these actual frigates. We need the support. And so part of Stoddart's issue at the beginning, again, completely new department. As described by Toll, Stoddart established, quote, the new department in two adjacent offices at 139 Walnut Street in Philadelphia, where his staff consisted of one chief clerk, four assistant clerks, and a messenger boy. His desk was piled high with applications for clerkships and officers' commissions that Secretary of War James McHenry, in the last days of his naval stewardship, had ignored. And so, small staff, lots of work coming in, folks wanting all these offices, and to be fair to James McHenry, and we we talk about that in his episode, as the Secretary of War, there was so much in addition to this. And so now you actually have somebody who can focus in on this. And that was, that was the whole point of establishing the Navy department to have somebody really focused in on this, but it was still a heavy lift. There was still so much to do. And as we mentioned earlier, Adams had long been a proponent for Naval preparedness. He had worked even in the continental Congress towards Naval preparedness. And thus it's no surprise that he urged Stoddard along in his work of getting the new Naval frigates up and running to the president. This was much more important than the buildup of the new army, which Alexander Hamilton was dealing with. But Adams really saw this, you know, if we're really engaged in this quasi war, we've got the French frigates It's not likely we're going to have the French army showing up on our doorsteps, but we do have these French frigates who are presenting a challenge to American shipping. That is an actual crisis. That is an actual problem that we need to deal with, and this is the solution. Thus far, early naval patrols had proven successful in securing the sea lanes leading out of the major American ports, but the French fleet was still out there. Stoddart reasoned that the U.S. Navy needed to meet the French challenge by projecting a bit of power of its own. Thus, he planned for the, quote, establishment of a permanent American naval presence in the Leeward Islands, which are the islands in the Northeast Caribbean, including the Virgin Islands down to Guadeloupe. Historian Ian Toll described that this plan, quote, would convert the conflict from a defensive operation on the American coast into a war of aggression against the basis of French privateering. It would also demonstrate that the Navy was something more than a private marine police force whose deployments could be dictated by merchant interests in Salem, Philadelphia, and New York. So here we see that there is that acknowledgement, okay, well, this is probably how we got the support to begin with for the Navy, but we really need it to be something more. Right. And I think, I think, you know, um, Teddy Roosevelt was a big historian and he wrote a book actually on the, the Naval War of 1812. So I'm sure all of this was in his mind when he was doing his thing. And basically the, what it boils down to is we need to tell you what we have to tell you to get you to build the ships. But now that we've got them, it's a Navy. Whoops. <laughs> Here's what we're going to do. Right. <laughs> and so the Southern deployment that was planned by Stoddart was commanded by Commodore Thomas Truxton of the USS Constellation and would establish a base on the island of St. Kitts and cruise the waters of the Caribbean, quote, his, his orders, and this is from his actual orders to Truxton, cruise the waters of the Caribbean, quote, wherever your judgment shall direct you. And so he's giving 
Truxton, pretty broad authority here. Truxton and his small fleet set sail on December 31st, 1798, and would soon score one of the greatest victories in the Quasi-War when the Constellation defeated the La Surgeon in February 1799. And so, you know, he hasn't even been in office for a year yet, and not only is he deploying a fleet, but they're actually successful. They're actually taking on the French Navy. And in the aftermath of the taking of La Sojourne, Truxton wrote to Stoddart that, quote, The French captain tells me I've caused a war with France. If so, I'm glad of it, for I detest things being done by halves. Now, despite the national pride over the victory, Stoddart proved himself to be an ethical and diligent public official. Despite the Admiralty Court awarding a prize of $120,000 for La Surgeon to be paid out to Truxton and his crew, Stoddart questioned the large estimate and, after consulting with a trusted colleague, offered Truxton $84,500 as a settlement. Otherwise, he was prepared to challenge the Admiralty Court ruling. Truxton, realizing that the official judgment was unlikely to hold up in an appeal, accepted the offer. So here you have this, and this is obviously a trusted commander. This is somebody who he said, right. you know, go forth and, and take on the French Navy. And with admiralty courts and being awarded prizes, this was money that, that would be paid out by the government. And even though this is a, his trusted commander, this is somebody who has brought a great victory, Stoddard's like, I don't really think that's right. I, you know, I'm willing to pay out some, but not this much. I'm interested. I'm interested in the whole in the whole concept because, you know, you're an official navy of the United States, but you took that French ship, so we're going to basically give you the reward of a pirate who captured. You know, essentially, it's 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 uh, privateering. You know, because I would have think that the United States government would be like, yeah, we'll keep all that. You got paid a salary to do your thing. You know, like they would now. So the whole notion of there being a prize after a battle fought on behalf of a country is interesting. And part of that was, and I don't claim to be an expert on naval history at, in the least, but from what I understand reading about it over the years, this was a motivation factor. You know, yeah, we're going to pay you a regular salary. We've already agreed to that. But if you score this great victory for us, we're going to give you a bit more. So maybe go out and score a few victories. Bring in these ships. Oh, yeah. Don't sit in port all day and do nothing. Exactly. We're not, we don't want you to do that. We're, we're going to pay you your salary, but here's some motivation to get out there and fight. And especially, you know, because with skilled sailors, they could move from Navy to Navy or they could work on a merchant ship. And so there was competition for getting the skilled sailors that you need it for the Navy. And so again, this was a motivating factor. Okay, well come and work for us and you know, we'll give you a good prize settlement for this. If you score a victory like this. And so really thinking about the personnel aspects of this, but it's just, it's so interesting that Stoddard, even though yes, this would have been a great motivating factor. He was like, no, this is, these are public funds and we need to do this above the board. So. And he was probably thinking, we need to build some more ships. Exactly. 
We already have that money set aside for other ships. <laughs> now, though the short-term successes were great, Stoddart realized that part of his role was in thinking of long-term naval policy and procedures. As described by Toll, Stoddart, quote, developed procedures to limit the chaos, waste, and mismanagement that had been the blight of naval building programs since 1794. He also actively worked on, quote, recruiting and promoting midshipmen who were capable of rising to command rank. Though he argued for a larger expansion of the Navy's fleet of battleships, this was one area that Stoddard failed to find success. But it was likely more due to the lack of political influence that President Adams had to exert, rather than Stoddard's abilities and efforts that this push failed. And with that said, let's take a moment to kind of turn away from the naval aspect of his role and kind of view his role in the administration. Because as we previously mentioned, there was a divide in the administration between the president and his cabinet. While the majority of the cabinet was more aligned with the arch-federalist camp than they were to Adams, Stoddart remained loyal to the president under whom he served. This did not mean, however, that he didn't have times in which he could respectfully disagree with Adams. One of these, and we already mentioned that Alexander Hamilton had a role in the buildup of the army at the time, and there was a controversy right when Stoddart came into the cabinet. Basically, George Washington had been appointed as commander-in-chief, and there were three officer positions directly beneath him. He wanted Alexander Hamilton, his right-hand person, to be his second-in-command. John Adams couldn't stand Alexander Hamilton, thought he was a dangerous individual, and so he was like, no, that's not going to happen. The cabinet sided with Washington, as most people did at that time, and that includes Stoddard. Even Stoddard sided with Washington. Ultimately, Adams would back down, Hamilton would be appointed as Washington's second-in-command, and would basically be the de facto leader of this new army because George Washington said, you know what? Until there's an actual war, I'm going to be at Mount Vernon. Hamilton, just take care of things. However, even with that said, Stoddart was the one cabinet member at this point in whom Adams could rely on. And Stoddart, in turn, would use his position to try to help the president thwart efforts by his cabinet members to countermand his orders. Going forward a little bit into 1799, 1799, the government actually temporarily moved to Trenton, New Jersey, because there was a yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia. John Adams had gone home to Massachusetts, but the cabinet members were still in the capital and moved to Trenton to keep the government running. You know, there's still paperwork still needed to be done. We were building up this Navy. They couldn't just say, you know, we're going to phone it in for a bit. They had to actually be there. But with this move to Trenton, this meant that they were even further away from President Adams. And so it took even longer for messages to go back and forth. And some folks that we've talked about in previous episodes of this series, uh, Secretary of State Timothy Pickering, Secretary of War James McHenry, they kind of used this to their advantage because at this point, Adams was pushing for a new peace commission to go to France. They were against the idea of the Peace Commission, and so it would end up, oh, you know, Adams would write, have you written out their instructions yet? Has that been done? Oh, no, no, I didn't. I, I, I'm sorry. I must have lost that letter. It hasn't arrived yet. 
Not sure what's going on. I'll send it whenever I can. Just, just hold on. No, really. Where are their instructions? They need them to be able to go. What's going on? Oh, I'm sorry. Your last letter just disappeared. I don't know. They use that to their advantage to try and delay the peace commission because they felt that at some point there would be a spark for war. And if they delay that peace commission just long enough, we would be at war. Hamilton would get his army and his military glory. Meanwhile, Stoddart was in Trenton and realized what was going on. And so he writes to Adams and he's like, you really need to get here now. If you want this peace commission to go forward, you need to come to Trenton. They are going to keep on delaying. Time is of the essence. So let me... uh... Uh, well, that's so. That's my question. I want you to check Stoddard's math here. Do you think that if Adams hadn't spent however long he spent in Braintree, that the peace, you know, this whole thing would have gone differently? Do you do you see Adams' absence from the capital as a major problem? Yes. Okay. And that is a criticism of Adams and his presidency is that he would have these times, and granted, all the presidents at this time would go home for months on end. Adams was no different. With this being such a key moment, he probably should have been at the Capitol. He probably should have cut short his time in Massachusetts. He probably should have come back to the Capitol to make sure that everything would go through. And Stoddard realized that. And he was like, you really need to listen to me. Get here now. And ultimately, Adams did. He went to Trenton. He sorted things out, got the Peace Commission going. And Stoddart did, and it was a a gentle nudge, but basically pointing out, you're messing up here. You need to get here now. And so, again, the difference of the cabinet members we've discussed to date, and most of them being against Adams, versus actually having somebody in his corner. Ultimately, in 1800, Adams would fire Pickering and McHenry and replace them with John Marshall and Samuel Dexter, respectively. Now, we haven't gotten to either of them yet. We'll discuss their tenures as cabinet members in upcoming episodes. But the important thing to note right now is that this would shift the nature of the cabinet from being an opposition force to being a force of support for the president and his agenda. So he finally has cabinet members who are more of the Stoddart line and actually supporting him. Unfortunately for Adams, this change came too late to really have a positive influence for him politically because 1800 was an election year. Before we get to that, though, let's return to the Caribbean and see how Stoddart's strategy there is playing out. So Stoddart assembled another squadron in 1799 under the command of Commodore Truxton and gave orders for the squadron to remain quote-unquote constantly cruising as an active patrol would keep the sea lanes clear and secure for American shipping. So again, you have trying to make sure that these merchant ships can actually get through, that we can have trade routes. And this would put Truxton in command of the USS Constellation for yet another notable engagement in the quasi-war against the larger French frigate La Vengeance on January 31st, 1800. Though this battle would end in a stalemate, the American ship inflicted heavy damages on the French vessel and proved the resilience and capability of the American naval forces 
even against an enemy with a decisive advantage. So in a very short amount of time, the U.S. Navy has gone from just being plans on a piece of paper to they can actually match the French Navy. Again, you see this reliance on Truxton. You know, Truxton is really proving himself to be this trusted figure out in the field. Stoddard would again turn to Truxton upon the Constellation's return to the Norfolk Naval Yard when, in the spring, the naval constructor on site at the Naval Yard disobeyed a direct order from Stoddard in terms of which ships to prioritize in making them ready to sail. Upon hearing this, Stoddard wrote to Truxton urging him to, quote, Assume all the authority belonging to your rank at Norfolk, which is as much as if you were already an admiral, or as if you had the command of the whole Navy. Truxton did not hesitate upon receipt of this message and took command of the situation in Norfolk, making sure that Stoddard's orders were actually fulfilled, were actually seen out. And so, you know, you really have Truxton as being his action person that trust it you know he's going to make things happen and you know what's interesting is that this is the this is the first time i'm really hearing about truxton too is that you know you you'd wonder why he wasn't a more prominent uh figure in history with all of his successes and his uh his go-getterness absolutely well and, and part of it is due to what happens later in the navy so in the the jefferson administration spoiler alert Jefferson kind of walks back from that. He tries to get Federalists out of the Navy. And and at that point, you know, the naval officers were primarily Federalists because they were typically related to merchant shipping. And that was a heavily Federalist line of work, a, a heavy, a heavily Federalist industry. And so, and, and again, it, it goes in with that the Navy serving as kind of a support for merchant shipping and vice versa, you know, that the Navy, the shipping funds, the Navy. So really interesting dynamics there, you know, this, this public private partnership as we would call it today, but with him kind of downgrading the Navy, trying to get folks out, trucks and would, of course, end up on the Federalist camp, and so he wasn't as favored by the Jefferson administration. And so you have commanders like him, even though he does play this important role in establishing the the reputation of the U.S. Navy, he really doesn't get as much of a spotlight, doesn't get as much of, a, of attention for his role in this undeclared war. One of the things that we mentioned earlier is that the Capitol was still in Philadelphia. But in late 1800, we see the new federal capital in Washington, D.C. is ready for the government to move there. And so Stoddard was able to return home after a couple of years in Philadelphia. Possibly in preparation for this move, Benjamin and Rebecca Stoddard had bought the Lowndes estate, Bostwick, in 1799. So this was the one that they had been kind of managing, even though they didn't own it. But they actually bought it in 1799. But it doesn't seem like that was an easy purchase for them. The house was noted as being owned by the heirs of her father. Now, this was the same source that said her brother Benjamin had inherited the property. So I don't know if the will was contested and control went back to all of the heirs. Again, one of those shady 
Stoddart things that we just don't know. But regardless, the Stoddarts did buy it outright in 1799. And as noted in a report documenting the history of Bostwick, quote, Stoddart may have bought Bostwick as an investment, a summer house, or as a place in which to live out his retirement. But in the short term, he actually rented out the house to a couple who they were waiting for their own house to be constructed, and so they needed a temporary place to stay, so it worked out for everybody. He also, in 1800, quote, divided and sold some of his land in Georgetown and near Rock Creek and donated some of his land to the new federal city. Stoddard had the privilege in the waning days of the Adams administration to issue the order to all commanders in the field to, quote, cease preemptive attacks on French armed ships when news came of the Convention of Mortfontaine, which helped to resolve the tensions between France and the U.S. and end the quasi-war. So he was actually able to say, you know what, we're good with France now, go ahead and the Navy is now a peacetime Navy. So here's a question for you. And this will reveal where I am in my in the presidencies of the United States podcast. But I'm still in the early Adams administration, and I'm I'm ashamed of that. But did the did the successes in the Caribbean change the French change their mind about how to approach the United States in the quasi war? Did they say, Wow, well they're they're beating us and so now we have to look at them differently? In part, and in part, and, and you will get to this in the, the narrative series when we talk about the Convention of Mort Fontaine and the Second Peace Commission, but in part, this was due to things that were going on in France. So this was the end of the directory. Napoleon does his coup, forms the consulate, and so he's starting to refocus his attention. And in part, this is, you know, Napoleon's wanting to focus attention elsewhere. And he's like, we really don't care about the U.S. Give them what they want. We don't really care. Which is kind of kind of how we got the Louisiana Purchase. <laughs> Thanks, Napoleon. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're, it, it did work out for us that he really considered us lesser. Right. Just, just, just go, the backwater. Go on. Go on. <laughs> but also, you do get the sense that we were causing enough trouble, you know, maybe, maybe we were just kind of hornets flying around, but we were causing enough trouble that he was like, okay, well, we just got to get this out of the way. We've got bigger things to think about. Just deal with it. We were able to create enough trouble, at least for that, for him to say, give them what they want. We're done. You know, and, and this was big news, you know, Adams was able, and there had been, this was something that had plagued his entire presidency, this potential war with France, these foreign tensions. And Adams, nobody really believed that we were going to end up with a peaceful solution to this. Folks thought, well, we're, we're either going to go to war or they're just going to run over us or whatever. They didn't think that we would get a diplomatic solution. And Adams was able to achieve it. Adams had constantly come back to the table with, let's give peace a chance. Let's try again. And he was able to succeed in that. Unfortunately for Stoddard and the president, this news did not arrive in time to impact the presidential election of 1800, and Adams lost his bid for re-election. Well, and that goes to my next question. And I know I'll get to this in the podcast, but you know, it seems like 
come 1800, Adams is like, okay, my first term was all about succeeding George Washington, but you guys now are all fired. And I'm going to clean house so that second turn Adams is going to be a gangbuster man. And so what was what was Adams' level of confidence about a second term? It kept getting worse as the election got closer. <laughs> and in part due to Alexander Hamilton and other arch federalists who were opposing him, were printing things that were negative to Adams. And almost, it was, I think that some arch federalists got to the point where they're like, well, we'd almost rather Jefferson than Adams because at least we can oppose him. At least we'll, we'll have somebody that, that we can come out and out and say we're against him. This is supposed to be our guy, but we really don't want him to be our guy. <laughs> one, of the, one of the 257 reasons that we don't have Federalists anymore. <laughs> exactly, because they tore themselves apart with this election and never really recovered from that. And so increasingly, as the election got closer, Adams started realizing, you know, this is, this is probably it. He's probably going to be facing retirement. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. We don't really, it's not within our scope to really go into it, but you'll also get to, at the end of the Adams administration, the tie between Jefferson and Burr and that Burr nearly becoming president period, which is kind of a scary thought. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Adams, and, and that's the thing, that's the you really have to wonder what a second Adams term would have been with a cabinet that he could trust with the peace with France, what Adams could have done in a second term, but alas, well, well, that's not to be. John Adams is one of my favorites because I, I really enjoy the curmudgeons of history and he was definitely one of them. But in, even before we started recording this episode, you and I probably said poor John Adams a couple of times. And I feel like that, that's the thing that people who study this time period just going to keep over and over again going, oh, poor John Adams. Exactly. And and that's the thing. You know, he, he had his faults, and I think he was pretty honest about his faults. He realized that he had a, a bit of vanity. He realized that he could be obstinate. He realized that he could, he could come across as being curmudgeonly. But you really do get the sense that he really did believe in what he was doing. He really did work for the nation. He saw himself as a true public servant. And part of his arrogance was the fact that he was capable. You know, again, all, you know, other Federalists were saying, oh, well, no, we're just going to go to war. And you have John Adams saying that is a bad idea. We really don't need to get into a full scale war we can find a diplomatic solution. And ultimately, Adams was right. But with that, you know, with him losing his bid for re-election, this meant, unlike John Adams, Thomas Jefferson was not going to retain Adams' <laughs> no. cabinet. He had his own folks that he wanted to bring in. But he actually asked Stoddard to stay on as Secretary of the Navy temporarily as he worked to find a replacement and Stoddard agreed to do so. Now, Stoddard was not the only member of Adams's cabinet that was temporarily 
retained after Jefferson became president. Samuel Dexter, who we'll talk about in a future episode, he also remained temporarily as Secretary of the Treasury. But neither Stoddart nor Dexter felt any obligation to fulfill the usual social functions of cabinet members. You know, at this point, they realize Jefferson's eventually going to get other folks in. We're just kind of keeping the seat warm. And so both of these holdovers from the Adams administration, they actually declined an invitation to a dinner in Alexandria that was held in Jefferson's honor shortly after the inauguration. This was actually attended by President Jefferson, Vice President Aaron Burr, and all the rest of the cabinet members that had been put in place by that point. So invitations had gone out to all the cabinet members, but Stoddard and Dexter were like, well, no, we don't, we don't need to go to that party. We don't really want to cheer Jefferson's success and inauguration. <laughs> and do you think it was clear that Jefferson had no intention of retaining them beyond a, a transition period? Absolutely. And we see that because the Democratic Republicans who not only captured the presidency, but they were also now in charge of Congress, they got right to work dismantling the military structure that had been set up during Adams's tenure, which included the Navy that Stoddard had worked so hard to build up. And so, you know, Stoddard has to sit there and watch as all of his hard work the last few years was dismantled. As described by Toll, quote, at the height of the quasi-war, the service had swollen 700 officers commanding 49 ships, most of which were converted merchantmen and galleys. The Peace Establishment Act would reduce the officer corps to nine captains, 36 lieutenants, and 150 midshipmen. Of the fleet, only 13 frigates would be kept in the service, and seven of these would be laid up in ordinary which meant that they were stripped of their armament and rigging and stored under specially constructed sheds. All of the smaller vessels in the Navy, brigs, schooners, galleys, would be sold back to private owners and returned to the merchant service from which they had been drawn. Hundreds of officers would be discharged and paid a severance equivalent to four months' salary. Of those officers retained, the ones not immediately employed on active duty would be reduced to half pay. So the Navy is just being stripped down and Stoddard has to be in office for the early part of that. Not to mention, I sure hope you don't need a Navy sometime soon, Mr. President, (laughs) maybe in North Africa. Exactly, because that would be coming right after Jefferson started the presidency. And that's the thing, like you, you can really, you can just imagine Stoddard just sitting there. This is wrong. I know, you know, this is the whole reason we built this up. Why are you doing this? And was the, was the motivation of the Democratic Republicans kind of like what we see now with presidential transitions? Like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to pull out all the pieces of the previous guy's Jenga tower. Like, did they just want to dismantle Adam's things because they were Adam's things? Or did they philosophically not think we should have a standing military force. So this really was more philosophical, you know, the Democratic Republicans. And and really, there was a general sense of we really don't like standing armies. We really don't like standing navies. There's the potential for that to be used against the people. Wasn't that what we fought the revolution for? But in part, it was also 
and and we see this with the army as well as the navy at the time because the officer corps was so full of federalists well part of that shrinking you get to get rid of those people and maybe you make things a little more uncomfortable for the folks who are still around and you know sorry if you feel like you have to leave we've got this democratic republican that we can put in place so it is ideological and also political and stoddart of course being a lame duck could do little to counter this move and he wrote that the task of laying off so many officers would prove to be quote a most painful duty fortunately for my feeling it will not fall on me so jefferson would have to enlist samuel smith who is who is somebody that is coming up more and more increasingly in the Madison presidency series. But Samuel Smith would step in as another temporary secretary of the Navy. He was a Democratic Republican until Jefferson could find a permanent replacement. And so this freed up Stoddart to be able to retire. And so he left office on March 31st, 1801. As a summation of his tenure, we should note that his one-time colleague, Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott, describes Stoddart as follows, quote, Mr. Stoddart is a man of great sagacity and conducts the business of department with success and energy. Leonard White, in his assessment of Stoddart, seconded this, describing him as, quote, hardworking, conscientious, and experienced in the management of affairs. After leaving office, Stoddart moved back to Halcyon House and returned to his commercial business in Georgetown. Unfortunately, he would find little success financially as he suffered heavy losses in land speculation. And this was one of those businesses that you see lots of people, including George Washington, getting into, but it just really didn't work out. And so Stoddart starts to suffer financially. Also, Georgetown began declining as a commercial center. So this whole dream of the Potomac being the gateway in and out of the nation didn't really pan out. Meanwhile, in February 1802, Benjamin's wife, Rebecca, died in Williamsburg, Virginia. At some point in that year, Stoddart would transfer over ownership of Halcyon House to his daughter, Elizabeth, and her husband, Thomas Ewell. In August 1802, the lease of Bostwick ended when the folks that Stoddart was leasing the house to moved into their newly completed home. But for some reason, it seems like it took him a little bit to move in, but it is believed that he may have been living at Bostwick by 1803, and we know for certain that he was living there by 1810, as that is listed as his primary residence on the 1810 census. We also learned from that census that Stoddard enslaved around 10 to 17 people at that point. Stoddard did make some improvements on Bostwick during his time living there, including building a detached kitchen and a, quote, large buttress on the exterior south wall of the house to support the chimney. According to the report on the history of Bostwick, quote, local tradition holds that the buttress also included chambers to be used as a jail for unruly slaves. Yeah. Yeah. His son Richard died in Bladensburg in 1810 at the age of 18, though I can't find a cause of death. So we're back to the the vagueness of Stoddart's life. Meanwhile, you know, he'd already been suffering financially and the War of 1812 did nothing to help that. 
the subsequent impact of that on foreign trade hit Stoddart, as it did many merchants, particularly hard. Stoddart did not have an opportunity to reverse his fortunes as he passed away at Bostwick on either December 13th or December 17th, 1813, and was buried in the graveyard at Addison Chapel in Seat Pleasant, Maryland. According to the inventory of his personal property, he enslaved 11 people at the time of his death. And as noted in the Bostwick report, quote, his property in Bladensburg was sold to pay his debts after his death. It's not clear whether or not this included the people that he enslaved. So before we kind of examine and talk about his life and career, we've got a few things to talk about in terms of his legacy. So starting with the site of his death, Bostwick, this home is still in existence today and is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. But in 2012, Preservation Maryland placed it on a list of threatened historic properties following damage sustained during the 2011 earthquake on the East Coast that also damaged the Washington Monument. As for the other home associated with Stoddart, Halcyon House, Halcyon House is also still in existence. A couple of notable ownerships in its history, in 1900 it was sold to a nephew of Mark Twain, and for a brief period in the 1960s it served as a dormitory for Georgetown University. Currently, it is the home of a nonprofit aiming to, quote, catalyze emerging creatives striving for a better world. Now, in terms of his family legacy, one of his grandsons, Richard S. Ewell, would be a notable Confederate general a few decades after his grandfather's death. So even though, and we see this in the Civil War history, these folks who had served the U.S. government ends up, their descendants would support the Confederate cause. But I think the two most directly applicable points of his legacy are that he's had not one, but two U.S. naval vessels named after him. The USS Stoddart was a Clemson-class destroyer commissioned in June 1920. It was in service for a little over a decade before being decommissioned in January 1933 and sold for scrap in August 1935. The second vessel named after him, the USS Benjamin Stoddart, lasted a bit longer. This was a Charles F. Adams-class guided missile armed destroyer, and it was commissioned in September 1964 and was in service for nearly three decades, being decommissioned in December 1991. There was also a Fort Stoddart built in 1799 in what was then the Mississippi Territory on a bluff on the Mobile River in what is now southern Alabama. This fort was the western terminus of the Federal Road through Muskogee Lands from Fort Wilkinson in Georgia. Aaron Burr was at one point held prisoner at this fort due to his infamous conspiracy, and the first newspaper in Alabama, the Mobile Sentinel, was printed there for a couple of years starting in 1811. Fort Stoddard declined in importance starting in the mid-18-teens, and it looks like it was probably abandoned at the end of the 1820s. There are not one, but two Benjamin Stoddard middle schools named after him one in Temple Hills, Maryland, and one in Waldorf, Maryland, both of which are southeast of D.C., so kind of the area that he lived. Waldorf is in the county in which he was born, and there's also a Benjamin Stoddard Elementary School in D.C. itself. He also apparently has an apartment building in D.C. named after him. But to kind of conclude his legacy and to speak to 
more of the the modern conversations about naming and who we want to remember and and name things after. There is actually a recent development, according to an article written by Daniela Bick in the Washingtonian from June of last year, a long-running youth sports league in the D.C. area, which had previously been known as D.C. Stoddart Soccer, decided to change their name to D.C. Soccer Club due to Stoddart's role in enslaving individuals. As stated in an email to community members, quote, by changing our name, we seek to disassociate with this racist history as his actions do not align with our club's values and commitment to soccer programming that supports diversity and inclusion. And on that note, we finish up with the life of Benjamin Stoddard. So initial thoughts. I, I can't help but like the guy. He started off kind of shady with his, we don't know when he was born. We're not sure where he went to college. There was the land deal. And so initially, I thought we were going in a completely different direction with Stoddard. I thought we were going to find that, you know, he was a bit of a weasel and things like that. But he he did the right thing. He he went, you know, he did, went and did the job. And he didn't engage in a lot of the backroom political shenanigans. It felt like his heart was in the right place. Um, and, and historically speaking, I'm glad that he actually had an official job because it's the only time we have any verifiable facts about him is while, while he's employed, while he's a federal employee, we know things, but after that, it's all kind of murky. So overall, um, you know, kind of like, it almost feels like a lot of the, the principal actors in the Adams administration and the Adams administration itself are, have kind of taken a back seat in history. But when you dig in, Adams wasn't that bad of a president. You know, the Navy surely stood up and, and, and uh, took care of business. Uh, you know, the, the, the Commodore and the Secretary of the Navy, I mean, they accomplished astounding things for the early republic that it took, you know, decades to, to do again. And um, so I feel like it's a lot of, they, they deserve a lot more credit maybe than they've been given. Absolutely. And that is actually a perfect segue to going into evaluating in our rounds. So with this, we're going to start with the whole picture. So this round kind of looks at the overall career and character of the cabinet member, and each of us can award up to 10 points. So in terms of his entire career, and, and I think you, you brought up an important point, Stacey, that we really know the most about his time in the Navy department because that is so well documented. But in terms of his overall career, what do you think about Stoddard? I think, um, I mean, I'm, I would still score him pretty high. I might take some points away for some of the shadiness. Like, you know, tell us what year you were born. You can do that. Right. <laughs> the land deal, you know, uh, it turned out good for the federal government, but maybe, you know, you wonder what the repercussions for other people might have been, you know, but, but I'm still feeling in the whole picture, I'm still feeling around an eight. I think that's a good, and one thing that I am going to mark him off a little bit on, you know, he, he did have so much success before, but it seems like, you know, after he left the cabinet that he, he, he started this financial decline. And so that's, you know, that does hurt his, Overall, you know, if we really consider him a success or not, but 
to your point, I think that I, I think that he does rank pretty high. He was a pretty successful person, and especially, you know, we'll talk a bit more about this in our our next round. But you know, the fact that this was his entire public service was just in the Navy Department, and the rest of his career was as a merchant, as a business person, and he had such success. I think that's that's important to take into consideration. So I think I'm I think I'm going to go with a seven for him. I think that that we've really got some good stuff there. He has his decline at the end, and there's a little little shadiness going on, but overall, he was a pretty successful person. Right, and and you know it's interesting. He kind of got into the business because he married into the family, and and then when the business was in decline, like. It, he didn't he didn't feel like a primary mover in his business career like it it seems like it started from somewhere else and external factors were able to bring it down so you know how much of a how great a businessman was he and the answer i think is just the right amount because you know one of the things that some of the other cabinet members had to deal with stoddard didn't didn't have to like edmund randolph had to you know pay his bills while he's in the cabinet and a lot of the other cabinet uh, secretaries did, but Stoddard, you know, he was he was well healed enough to say, "Yeah, I'll take that job, and I'll move to Philadelphia, and I won't need a side gig, and I can just focus on this one thing." And I feel like his business success kind of contributed to his ability to just do his job the right way without distraction. Absolutely, and I think that's a great segue to the go-getter realm, which is where we look at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And so just like the last round, we can score up to 10 points maximum for him. So in this more documented part of his history, what, what do we think about Stoddard as a cabinet Or documented member? at all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We actually have details. <laughs> right. So here's... Uh, I, I'm going to score him pretty high in this category for a couple of reasons. One, he didn't have to take this job. He he didn't need to serve in the cabinet for financial reasons or for prestige reasons. Like he was asked to serve, and he did mostly because he was asked to serve. So that's that scores pretty high. Um, the second thing is is that he essentially founded a department that hadn't existed before. So he was the first the first naval secretary, which gives him, I think, the same level of props that you would give to Alexander Hamilton for the for the Treasury and um, um, Jefferson for state and so on. Um, and so as the first secretary of the Navy, he did kind of write the book. And we have to kind of we can't argue against him doing it right. He approached it with humility. So Hamilton. He was smart enough to know what he didn't know. He relied on experts to get things done, which which implies that he's goal oriented. Like he's in this to do the best job that he can, no matter what it takes. And he's gonna he's gonna get himself out of the way. He's not gonna be in the way of making the Navy Department a success. And you see that even when he sends the Commodore into the into the Caribbean, he gives him wide latitude. He says you're the guy who knows how to do this. And so my orders are for you to go do follow your best judgment, which from a leadership standpoint, once you have people that you can trust to do the right thing, the smartest thing you can do is let them do it. 
And so I think he scored pretty well on across the board in that regard. And it makes you wonder what a more self-involved or self-obsessed cabinet secretary might have done that, you know, because he took office in 1798 and by 1799, we're kicking the French around the Caribbean. That's a lot of results in a very short amount of time. So I feel like in doing the job he was given, he nailed it. And it's, it's, it's also, I think, in, to his credit, that he's still so obscure because, you know, Hamilton's got this play. And in part, it's because of all the things he did in the Treasury. You know, he, he uh, got the nation's credit on a firm footing. He, he basically built our entire economic system. And he gets all the props for that. But Stoddard built the Navy. We still have that, too. And so the fact that we don't talk more about Stoddard in the founding father early republic years is probably a testament to his humility. He said, you know what? I'm not a Navy man. I'm not a shipbuilder. But I can get all the people who know stuff about navies and get them to build a navy that, and I can't say this enough, kicked the French around the Caribbean quite a bit. So I'm, you know, the only point I might take away from the go-getter is that one aspect of go-getterism is that you're taking your victory laps too, so that people know your name, because there is there is value in that. So future secretaries of the Treasury have the example of Hamilton to live up to. It, it sets the bar pretty high. And when you work on your own press, when you when you at least talk about how how great you are in what you did, your your successors have that to live up to. And I feel like maybe Stoddard didn't do as much of that so that his successors were like Stoddard. Oh yeah, he was here last week. I don't know where he is now. So I'm going to go with a 9 on go-getter. I think I'm going to match your 9 and you brought up some of the same points that I was thinking of, you know, the fact that he really focused in on the job and it wasn't about his own personal gain or personal ego or you, you really get the sense that this was just somebody who knuckled down and did his job and wanted to do it well and and felt the sense of public service. And especially, you know, this wasn't something that he had to do. He was already successful. He was already wealthy. He didn't need to make his name. He didn't need to make his fortune. He could have just lived out the rest of his life in, in peace. And he decided, I'm being called to service. I really am reluctant to do it, but I also know I can do it well. And you just, you cannot argue with the success that he was able to achieve. He set out to do something and he did it. But to your point, you know, the fact that he was humble to his own detriment and in part that may have hurt, that may have hindered the success of his work. You know, if he had been able to establish a greater relationship with other leading politicians at the time, could he have had an influence on changing the public perception of the established Navy, the established military establishment. That's a great point because if, you know, there are thought leaders, I guess you might call them, um, in, in the early Republic, you know, people who set the tone for, well, even the treasury, right? You know, we have to give Hamilton his due that even his detractors said, yeah, you did that right. And 
and it's because they didn't like Hamilton personally that that I think that they they didn't give him more credit. But you know what happened after the Adams administration was twenty four years of we don't like navies, and when you're the 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 only thing you've done is Secretary of the Navy, that's your one shot, and you know you'd have to live another thirty years to to make your impact, and so you know, much of the Adams administration to me is lost opportunity in that if they just gotten a second term, you, I think we'd be talking about Stoddard in the same context as we talk about Hamilton and some of these other guys who, who innovated the mechanisms of the, of the American government early on and stuck and Stoddard did it. He just doesn't get as much credit for it as he, as he should. And the other thing that I think we can't forget about is that he was loyal to the administration and that, you know, in the, in the early, uh, the first few presidencies, we're finding that's not as common as you might think. And so I'd like to give him props for that too. Absolutely. And, and I think also, because part of this round is talking about kind of interactions and impact within the cabinet the fact that, and I, I really wonder if bringing Stoddard in and seeing this example of somebody who really did work to support him, if that in turn helped Adams to think, you know what, I really can get rid of these folks and get some people in who will actually support me. And, you know, we're achieving all this success with this guy who really supports me and is doing what I want him to do. Maybe if I had some of those folks in every department, who knows what we could do? I, I think that may have been an impact in reshaping the cabinet. Well, and hopefully Stoddard shamed some of his fellow cabinet members who were taking secret letters from Alexander Hamilton saying, oh, hey, today we're going to, you know, we're going to tie Adam's shoes together. So he trips and falls down. You know, maybe Stoddard's approach to, the, to, the, to being a cabinet secretary gave them an example to follow as well. Absolutely. And I think it did because that's that's one thing with studying the early presidency and this transition to John Adams from George Washington with the loyalty or sometimes lack thereof to George Washington with those that were loyal to him. It was really more because this is George Washington, not this is the president. And so that was one of the the challenges of John Adams as president, trying to establish a respect for the office, trying to establish a respect for the institution. And Stoddart exemplifies that. He he says, you know, this is this is the chain of command. This is he this is the chief executive. I need to support the chief executive. And that's more of what we think of the ideal, the norm nowadays versus, and we're going to see some more instances of this as we go along. At times there were views of the cabinet members in the president being kind of one amongst the cabinet members, you know, that everybody should have one say versus this idea of the president is the final decision maker. That's more of the norm nowadays. That's what became the ideal, so to speak. And Stoddart has an influence on moving that needle along, moving that idea along. So, well, like when when Adams was on one of his uh, long vacations, you know, Stoddart didn't didn't flinch from saying, "Hey, 
you're messing up here, buddy, which is what you want in a, in a cabinet secretary. It's what you want in an advisor is someone who, who can speak truth to power as they say. Right. And so some of the other members of the Adams cabinet took the approach of to his face, they're going to nod their head, but they're going to work behind his back. Stoddard is like, here's how you do this job. If you're a trusted advisor to the president, you tell him the truth. You tell him when he's right. You tell him when he's wrong. And you talk to him first, not this other guy who used to be here. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I think, and this is, this is the first in a while that we've seen a cabinet member that really seems to have had a great impact. And so, you know, I think that a nine from each of us, I think that's, that's pretty fair for Stoddart. And he's doing pretty well thus far. But now we need to turn our attention to the hot seat realm, which is a realm where we discuss any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. And this disgrace doesn't necessarily have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet, although in some cases it is. But in this round, we are actually going to take away points. So each of us could take away up to 10 points from Stoddard based on, on how we're feeling. And so, Stacy, what do you think in terms of any less than stellar? Well, we don't have a lot. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we don't have a lot to go on because outside of his office, his tenure of office, there's not a lot of details, right? So, you know, a firsthand account by one of his frat brothers at the university might have shed some light onto what kind of guy was he, you know, before. Also, the way in which business was done at the time, I feel like he may have had to transcend some ethical boundaries to be successful. And I feel like he probably just went ahead and did that. And, you know, getting to the land deal, uh, land speculation, land speculation was not an endeavor where you covered yourself in glory, because in a lot of cases, you were finding yourself owning land that was maybe still owned by somebody else or had to be forcibly taken away. So even though we don't have the details about that, we might be able to make some assumptions and say that, well, you know, if he was involved in land speculation, I'm, I'd be willing to bet that some Native Americans got got the, the raw end of the deal. Um and the people that he may have had to associate with in order to be successful as a merchant as a, and as a land speculator, well, they might have done things with his tacit approval that we would not have liked. And we don't know that for sure, but we, we, we may be able to, to make that assumption. And it's also possible that his prior maybe shady lifestyle inspired him to do the right thing when it came time to do the right thing. So there's that about the stuff that mostly we don't know. But the thing that we do know is that he enslaved people. And you almost wonder, being one of the most, so far anyway, financially successful people, it wasn't like he owned 300 slaves and he needed them to run his plantation. He had 11, maybe 13. And that, to me, suggests that they were more household servants than actually producing anything that he needed to maintain his lifestyle, which puts them in the optional category. And so when you talk about, you know, even George Washington freeing his 300 slaves or, you know, close to that number, or some of the other, you know, Jefferson couldn't have freed anybody. His whole, he was so debt ridden, he would have collapsed. But Stoddard, you're almost like 11, like why keep them? 
Like, why not set them free? And the only uh, the only thing is, is that Stoddard at least wasn't running around spouting off about freedom all the time, the way that Jefferson was. There was no there was no upfront hypocrisy uh, with Stoddard the way there was with Jefferson. But at the same time, the number of slaves were so incidental, and he was so financially successful. It almost feels like he forgot that they were slaves. And to me, that's that's kind of bad too. Is that you know at least when you when you have a big plantation and and the slaves are working the plantation you know that they're there and you know that they're slaves and and that's one thing it feels like these were afterthoughts and the same way that the way that he built his tobacco business was on the backs of slaves and he knew it but he didn't have to look at it as directly as some other slave owners and so he may have given himself a pass morally on that issue and so that doesn't really cover him in glory. I feel like he was a kind of guy, if you're going to make a principled stand in the cabinet and in building the Navy and in fighting the French, if you're going to be so forthright and altruistic in that venue, why didn't that carry over to freeing your 11 house slaves and letting them go free? Like, you know, and, and it, it did you just not think of it? And that's even worse. Like he didn't even consider it. Jefferson and Washington, you know, they wrestled with slavery as a moral issue. They did confront it. This is like where he was like, well, it's no big deal. And that's not great. So in, yeah, in that sense, I'd probably take away four or five points. And, and I'll let you kind of think about how many you want to take away, but I think absolutely you bring up some great points and, I think in part you get the sense of Stoddard as somebody who got the job done because he also he wasn't fighting against the system. He realized, okay, well, this is kind of how things are. This is the price of doing business. This is just the way things are. And let's go along with that and just, you know, be successful, get money build the Navy. And I think that's where it comes in with these people that he enslaved. It was a matter of convenience and that's, that's a problem. Now this was Maryland and Maryland remained a slave state until the civil war. And so, you know, this, this would be a part of Maryland's culture and society for decades even after Stoddart passed away, but we still do need to take some points away from him because he was an active participant and doesn't seem to have had a problem, at least as far as we know, you know, we, we do have, we do have to admit that there is uh, a vagueness to so many aspects of Stoddart's life, but you just really don't, get the sense that he would have had much of a problem with it. And we do have to acknowledge that. And, and like with his legacy and the, the soccer club deciding to change their name, you know, there, there are no amount of points that can really speak to the horror of slavery. You know, if one, even owning one individual, even enslaving one individual is wrong. But that's really, 
that and the potential that he may have been involved in some not completely above the board, but also just the way business was done at the well, time. That's yeah. So now you have, you've talked about slavery in every episode here. Um, and I think that you've, you've approached the subject really well with, with compassion and understanding and trying to communicate across how morally reprehensible it was. And so my, my question in this case, so first of all, your point about the cost of doing business, anyone who says that nowadays, we don't admire that. Anybody who says they, exactly. anybody who says it's the cost of doing business means that they're dismissing something out of hand for pursuit of a larger goal, which more often than that's just money. And so for Stoddard to live most of his life under that, oh, it's just the cost of doing business. Therefore, I'm not even going to think about it because that's what the phrase does. It gets you off the hook of thinking about it. And so I give more credit to somebody who actually faced it and struggled with it and thought about it even if they may ended up making the wrong decision, which, you know, a lot of them did. They're like, yeah, this is morally wrong. And, but within that framework, I'm going to do the best I can. Because like George Washington, at his own expense, took care of his slaves after they couldn't work anymore. I mean, but he faced it. Stoddard, I think, dismissed it out of hand and didn't give it a second thought. And that's kind of worse. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the thing. It, it ultimately comes to, and that's part of the reason why... I do make a point of addressing this in every episode. It it seems it, it really does feel like every episode because that was life that, you know, even though Stoddard or people like him may have, Oh, well, let's just don't talk about that. These individuals were there and we need to acknowledge that they were there and that they were enslaved because ultimately for me, it makes me reflect on what do we do today? You know, what are the things that we question or what are the things that we ignore problems in our society and culture? And how would pe- how will people look at us 100, 200 years from now? How will they judge us? And so having this opportunity to look at Stoddard and to look at this and and that's the thing, like there were people who were saying this is wrong. There were people in the government who were saying that this was wrong. And so Stoddart knew about that. And we have to acknowledge, and I think that that is, that is part of this round. We have to acknowledge that it just doesn't seem like he really, that he was okay with that. And he could have turned his head to the right and asked President Adams, hey, what do you think about slavery? Because Adams would have said, yeah, we don't do that because it's wrong. He had options. You know, he wasn't necessarily working for a president who had his own tobacco plantation. So he knew it was wrong. And I think he chose to look away from it. So he didn't have to deal with it, which is kind of a, it's a failure of courage, a failure of moral courage. And so we can't not ding him for that. So what are you thinking in terms of a number? You had mentioned either four or five. Yeah, the more I talk about it, the worse he comes off. Because only only because and, he didn't struggle with the problem. Like it yeah. it it's the callous disregard of slavery mm-hmm. in his case 
that feels worse um, because even even Jefferson and even Washington dealt with it in their in their they they agonized over it to a point. It seems never to have crossed Stoddard's mind, and I think a lot of the injustices that happen across history are not intentional. You know, a lot of the, the bigger injustices just come from somebody who's casually dismissive or pretends to not know it's a problem rather than the, you know, the, the, you know, there are how many truly evil people there are who intentionally say, yeah, I'm going to enslave people because that's how I'm going to make money versus how many people who are just, oh, was that produced by slaves? I had no idea, but yeah, you kind of did. So I'm revising my points and I feel like I'm going to have to, you know, he did set the bar pretty high as a cabinet secretary on a number of points which means my expectations for him are higher. And it meant that the same way that he had the luxury of becoming a cabinet member because he didn't need a job, I feel like he also had the luxury to maybe delve into some of these moral questions and he resisted that chance. So I feel like I'm going to take away maybe closer to eight points. I'm going to go a bit lower just because, and again, like arguably anybody who enslaved individuals could arguably be a 10, but because this category is about is looking at all aspects of their life and, and disgrace. And we do have to admit that as a cabinet member, he was much more honorable than people like Timothy Pickering, for example, I do want to kind of take that into account, but we do also need to acknowledge this and and the fact that part of the reason that he got to the level of wealth that he did was because of enslaved individuals, whether they were owned by him directly or were indirectly part of the tobacco industry. So I think we do need to acknowledge that. And so I'm going to go with a, I'm going to take away five points and Again, that's just that's really thinking of the cabinet overall and some of the other folks that we've we've encountered. But I do I do think that we it he has to get dinged on the fact that he just it it seems like he could have been in a position to do something and just didn't chose to ignore it. Yeah. So with that, right now he is at twenty points. And he has an opportunity to earn a few more points before we're said and done with him, starting with tenure of office. And so tenure of office, and it's it's pretty clear, surprisingly for Benjamin Stoddard, we actually have pretty clear dates on him and when his tenure of office started and ended. So he, he started on June 18th, 1798. And he left office on March 31st, 1801. And so rounding, that gets him three points because we give a point for each year around it. So approximately three years, so three points. The other opportunities that he has to score some points is with our bonus points. So cabinet members can earn one bonus point if they served in more than one full-time cabinet position, but that's not in play with Stoddard. He was just the secretary of the Navy. He does earn a point though, because he served in more than one presidential administration. 
It may have been less than a month, <laughs> but he still served in the Jefferson administration. So by by the skin of his teeth, he gets that extra. That was bonus a very point. key three weeks for him. <laughs> it was. He does not earn the last bonus point though, because he never became president. And I I don't think that Stoddard would. I, I think he was close enough to the president to realize that that wasn't an office that he really desired. No. no. Also, there wasn't there there wasn't the opportunity either because you know the twenty four years of uh, or however long it was of uh, of Democratic Republicans, you'd have to live a long time to <laughs> to even get a shot. Exactly, exactly. But that brings us to our last question. So, Stacy, after all I've shared about Stoddart's life and career and what we've discussed. Do you think that he is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars? I'm leaning very strongly toward a yes. And I, I have, I, I think now when he's at the table of cabinet all-stars, most of them are going to go, who are you again? Because he didn't make a name for himself in doing the things that he did, but he started a department that hadn't existed previously. He built it up to a level to where it was effective. It accomplished the job he had been given, and it was in a pretty short amount of time. In in our discussion of him, I didn't see a lot of setbacks as Navy secretary. He built the ships, he outfitted them, he got the officers, he won the battle, and he even exercised fiscal restraint when it came down to Pirates of the Caribbean time. So he was loyal to his president and his administration, but it didn't keep him from telling Adams a couple of hard truths about himself, which of all presidents we've talked about so far, Adams definitely needed somebody to say, hey, buddy boy, is Abigail sick or something? Because nobody seems to be telling you that you're messing up here. So I'm going to do it. He felt a responsibility to the administration, to the country, to the president. And uh, that was a disturbingly rare quality in the early administrations. So I would give him a seat at the table. And I would just, again, reiterate that most of the other guys at the table wouldn't know who he was. And that, that unfortunately, works against him in this, in this point. But I'd still give him his seat. Well, and, and I will go ahead and say, so he does have 24 points total, which is actually third thus far. And he is the 10th cabinet member that we've discussed. So he is third in that 10. And the only two people above him are Alexander Hamilton and Henry Knox. So I think, to your point, I, I think I'm good with giving it to him. You can't take away from him that not only did he establish a new department with no precedent, he also did it well. And the Navy has played such an important key role in American history in this time afterwards. And so I think that he really does deserve that seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars. And, and here's another thing about the, you know, the all-stars. One of the things about the all-stars is future cabinet secretaries. You want them to be like him, right? You want a, a defense secretary like Henry Knox and, and you want a treasury secretary like Alexander Hamilton without the, uh, you know, occasional detractors. And when it comes to picking a, a cabinet secretary, you could do way worse than to say, be like Benjamin Stoddard. And I think that helps get you your seat at the table because you're providing the example 
of what we really want in a cabinet secretary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's key. And I think that that he helped to establish a precedent that we see as, you know, to your point, this is what you want in a cabinet secretary. And so I think that earns him that seat. And they may not know who he is whenever he sits down, but they should. They should. And I'm glad to have had this opportunity to talk with you and to share more about Benjamin Stoddard, to be able to share more information about him with our audience. Because again, that was part of doing the series is, you know, we talked about Stoddard in the narrative, but never really got to delve into what he, you know, who he was, what he did. And I think, you know, the, the positives as well as the negatives are important I think there's, this has been, uh, we've talked about some really important topics in this. And so Stacy, I cannot thank you enough for your, your time for this discussion. Greatly appreciate you coming on presidencies and talking about Benjamin Stoddard. Happy to do it. And I hope that if there is some historian living in Maryland right now for your next project, we want you to dig into Benjamin Stoddard and find out some more about him because that sounds like something that's worth doing. Absolutely. Please help us to narrow down when he was born, when he died. <laughs> just when he was born. Those little And what went on in college. If you could j- just, just do that for us. But, but yeah, I mean, as I told you in the beginning, this is a great series and it serves a great purpose in making clear that presidents never do it alone. And when they have the right team, they accomplish great things. And when they don't, well, bad things happen. Absolutely. They end up in a train wreck. So to speak. To coin a phrase. So to speak. To to coin a phrase. And with that, with our audience, once you're done with this episode, I hope you'll give History's Train Wrecks a listen. And I will be sharing information about History's Train Wrecks around the time of release. It'll also be on the source notes page for this episode. But Stacy, thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time. Stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.